The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Before we get started, before we get started this episode of Bench with Bubba, a couple things to talk to you about. First, rotoballer.com, proud sponsor of the show. Great products over there, premium products, premium tools, premium Slack chat, articles, a lot of free articles as well. A lot of great stuff over there. You know, I write a lot of DFS content at rotoballer.com for baseball and football. We have a lot of season-long content for baseball coming up even as the season winds on down. So go over to rotoballer.com, join the premium package, use promo code Bubba for 10% off the package of your choice. Also, if you are into fantasy sports, which you obviously are for listening to the show, and you love the strategy of season-long fantasy sports, and you live for the short-term gratification at DFS, then you have to try it out. You have to try out Owner's Box, everybody. It's a weekly fantasy sports game on Owner's Box. WFS, not DFS, WFS, weekly fantasy sports. Head on over to rollerballer.com backslash box and sign up today. Weekly fantasy sports is the best of daily and season-long. It keeps you engaged throughout live drafting and new multi-week games. OwnerBox will be playing out users who bring their friends on board. Watch the real money rewards pile up through their first-ever three-tiered referral system. Add friends, create groups, and rank up to to elevate the trash talk and competition to the next level. So basically... You sign up. You come play at Owner's Box. Use rotoballer.com slash box to sign up. Then you bring your friends in, and you get a little kickback for that. You have your own leagues, weekly leagues. Talk all the trash. Have all the fun. Hey, but that's not it. In honor of the NFL season going forward, Owner's Box will be matching your first-time deposit up to $50 when you head on over to rollerballer.com backslash box and sign up today to claim your rewards and join the new wave of weekly fantasy sports at WFS. For all you lovers of fantasy sports, weekly fantasy sports, owner's box, rotoballer.com backslash box for a $50 deposit bonus. Now to this new episode of Benched with Bubba.
And welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Bubba and Batflip, episode 54. Going to talk some uh, player debates, I guess, for the two early mocks, ADPs by position. Go over a handful of those. There's going to be much, much more that could be discussed, and we probably will, because we'll need stuff to talk about throughout the offseason before we do player previews, which probably isn't that far around the corner. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at BDintrick and the Batflip portion of the show on Twitter at BatflipCrazy. Toby, how we doing, man? We are doing, uh, we're doing well, Bubba. Um, you know, we're, we've got, we're right at the end of the line here in, in the NLCS. Um, so just, uh, just, just monitoring that while we rock the pod. And um, as always, you know, we, we, we continue to, um, we continue to show up throughout the off season, regardless of what is happening. So. Yep. Yeah, we'll be here. We'll, the majority of the time we'll be here once a week. If if something comes up, we might take a week off here or there just to kind of get things done. But we'll be here once a week. Like I said, position previews will start in another few weeks, like I, I think December. So it's not that far away. It's like four episodes, five episodes away. We'll be doing position previews. So not that far away. Yeah, the two early mocks has been a good way to kind of get our head twisted towards 2021 a little bit. And then we'll kind of dig in deeper and look at some some more stuff as we get um, you know more information, more storylines, stuff along those lines to talk about, which usually come out once the postseason's done. You start hearing some more stuff. So we got about one more week of baseball, the World Series. I think if it goes seven games, it'll be a week from Tuesday. I think it would be game seven. Oh, so man. we've got about ten more days of baseball, potentially. That's what yeah. we have to look forward to. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, just to think too, like you know, draft champions league leagues through NFBC will start right after, after the world series concludes. And um, it's been a really fun postseason. I mean, it's just been a really, really enjoyable outside of like MLB scheduling, which just yeah. continues to the worst. confuse me. Um, you know, why they're putting certain games where like we want to be able to watch the games, yeah. you know? Um, and then like mixing some in the morning and then some in the evening. It's like, Oh, if you're a Braves fan, you have to be up till like one o'clock in the morning, you know, to watch the games. But outside of that, it's been a real, a real treat. And, and congrats to the Rays fans, you know, our buddy Yancey Eaton. Um, I know there's others like Jason Collette and uh, Mike Warner over at FWFD who, who are definitely big, um, big Rays supporters. So kudos to them. That was a, that was a really exciting series. And, you know, the Rays, there's all these narratives, but the Rays play good baseball. They've got an elite bullpen. They've got elite starters as well, which I think oftentimes goes under the radar. And um, and everybody contributes in their own way. And I think that there's something special about a team that, you know, is kind of better as a sum, better than the sum of its parts or something yep. like that. Yeah, is that how the saying goes? Yeah, sounds about right. Okay, and, cool. And, and they got the man, the myth, the legend, Randy Arena. So that's always pretty good. So that, that doesn't hurt. But uh, for all the Dodger fans, if you guys do advance, which you are three outs away from potentially doing it as we record. We don't um, want to uh, jinx you. We don't well, want to yeah. jinx it, Bob. Well, Bob, Bob, Bob Bobby, Bobby Nightingale was so nice that the second Bellinger ball went out of the park, tweeted out that the Dodgers are six out of ways from the World Series. It was like, <laughs> thanks, Bob. Like, I would, no one would have figured that out without you. Really appreciate your hard work and dedication to the craft. But <laughs> um, I just want to let people know that like, get annoyed with me not liking the Dodgers. I picked the Rays to win before the season, and I picked them before the playoffs to win. So if you tell me I'm just bandwagging the Rays now, you're false on that one. Maybe the Braves, maybe these other teams, but the Rays, no. I've wanted the Rays to win this whole time. So I will stick through that one thin and thick. But uh, let's talk player debates. Let's have some fun with this. And uh, we'll start – and we're still in our uh, mock draft. I believe I made like my 27th round pick. I think I have four more picks to go. We just started that round. 
So I got four more picks to go, all reserve picks. So we're pretty much wrapping things up. But we'll do a couple different positions here, uh, mainly offensive. I didn't do any pitching yet because that could be like a whole other show. You could do a ton of different <laughs> yeah. debates on that. So maybe we'll do that one next week. Yeah, that, that, that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, because like I was started on the pitchers. Like, yeah, that's a lot of things we could do there. So did a couple from each position for the most part. Um, and we'll start with first base here. We got Abreu, Voigt, and Alonzo. And right now, if you go by ADP, Abreu's at 37, Voigt 46, Alonzo 52. But they're the fourth, fifth, and sixth first baseman off the board. And the reason I like to pick them because, A, they're next to each other. B, 15-team leagues. It's like, okay, early third round, early fourth round, in the fifth round. Like, these are the one of the guys you're going to take unless you just kind of keep waiting for the Olsons, Goldschmidts, others of the world. Another debate we have coming up after this for farther back. But when you look at these two, these three, you got Abreu, the veteran, who's always consistent, but always like the 11th or 12th first baseman off the board, had a monster year, gets quite the, the boost. You got Voigt, who was like the 20th first baseman off the board, maybe 17th, 18th, had a just monster year, but health's always a concern. Then you had Pete Alonzo, who everyone's in love with, but he fell back because regression was due for Pete. Still hits the stunt out of the baseball, but uh, there was some regression that you kind of think – I think we saw exactly who Pete Alonzo was. A mediocre average, still tons of power. So when you look at these three guys, Toby, and I know you might not even want to draft any of them, but if you had to, how would you go about picking which of these three you take? Wow, Baba, you know me so well. Uh, <laughs> I, when right. I when I put this list, when I put this whole list together, I'm like Toby wouldn't draft like eighty percent of these guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Abreu, obviously, I mean, he's very good. Um, I think for me, he's kind of head and shoulders above these other guys. And the reason I say that I think is a couple things. I think this, the, 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 the skills are, are consistent. Like he's done this for a very long time. He's been, he's been very good every single year. And, you know, obviously he's not going to be able to replicate, like we're not going to get this times three, you know, next year from him, but the skills are just super consistent, makes really quality contact, makes a lot of contact, relatively low strikeout rate for a guy who hits for his amount of power. And I think the major change that's taken place is the guys around him, right? So more guys um, behind him to drive him in. Like Eloy Jimenez is not a bad guy to have right behind you. Um, you know, and then they've got some real studs in front of him too. And some really good OBP guys. I mean, Tim Anderson is not known as an OBP guy and we'll talk about him a little bit later, but you know, his batting average is so high consistently that he actually is a decent OBP guy. And then you have Yohan Moncada as the number two or Yasmani Grandal as the number two. And both of those guys are solid OBP dudes. So I think, um, yeah, I mean, I just think that the, the situation is great. And I think that kind of some of all parts, some of all parts, I'm using that again, God, uh, the sum of what he provides, like the skills are just very consistent, very good. Everything, he checks every box except for plate discipline. So if you're in an OBP league, you know, maybe not, but, um, you know, if you're in a five by five, if, if your league uses average, I think he's just, he's awesome. He's awesome to have. Um, after that, I think, you know, it may be a little bit of a surprise, but I'd probably go with Pete Alonzo. I think, um, you know, I think a good example, like, you know, Luke Voigt kind of everything, you know, in a lot of ways, everything worked out for him, right? Uh, 34.9% home run per fly ball. Um, you know, the BABIP obviously, the BABIP actually could have been, was lower than his uh, within his season total. So maybe there's a little bit more there in the batting average. But I just think like Alonzo underperformed, like in terms of, 
you know, maybe expectations of what he was going to do, but he'd still provided a really solid line. He actually lowered his strikeout rate um, uh, this past year, although the contact rate was, was somewhat down. Um, but I, I just think like if you were going to go into a season and you were going to say, okay, who is more likely to hit 45 home runs this season, you know, Luke Voigt or Pete Alonso, I'd have to go with Alonso. Voigt maybe a little bit of the, of the, of a little bit better in terms of his batting average and what you might expect in that perspective. But, um, you know, I, I just, I think I trust Pete Alonso a little bit more than Luke Voigt. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong there, but um, yeah. So I'd probably go, go with Alonzo just because I think, you know, we haven't seen the injury stuff that we've seen from Voigt, um, you know, out of Alonzo. So that's not really a concern. And I just think from a consistency standpoint, I think going into the season, if you were like, okay, who's more likely to hit 250 with 45 bombs, a hundred RBIs and, you know, 80 runs or something like that. I'd probably go with Alonzo over, over Voigt. Um, but again, I think that's, it's a pretty close call there. How do you feel about it? Yeah. I can't argue that it's cause I, I just, I'm never an Alonzo fan, but I, I don't disagree with the sentiments there. I go with the Brave out of the three. I could always be a Brave fan. The consistency is, is huge for me. The batting average that he brings to the table, which these other guys don't really bring to the table we're talking about. And um, still, like that lineup around him, you said, is just tremendous. Uh, that, it's going to get better. They're so young. That that offense is going to be very, very good with the White Sox. So I like Abreu a lot. The overall hit tool is just phenomenal. So um, I, I have no no qualms about him there. It's just the price tag is crazy this year. Um, I, I like to see where that actually ends up in March. You imagine it's going to drop a bit, but I don't know. That's a steep, steep price tag. So, yeah, it really comes down to like Voight versus Alonzo for like who would you take second. And Alonzo's a guy I was very, very down on coming into this year, at least for his price. So now the new price is a little more reasonable. I'll be 100% uh, honest there. But it's just it's weird when you look at his overall stat cast page because like his barrel rate dropped 3%. His sweet spot percentage dropped 7%. But everything else, you know, like the the strikeout rate dropped one percent, hard hit one percent, like minor drops there. Almost everything else stayed in line with what he did. His batting average actually obviously dropped a big amount. When I mean, you look at his BABIP, it went from two eighty to two forty two. He's like two eighty was his career low. He never hit below uh, two eighty four in the minors before that was three fourteen or higher. So career low BABIP last year, which resulted in a much lower batting average. So that's something to keep in mind that maybe it's just a slight tweak. And when you look at his you know, his types of contact, ground ball rate was similar, fly ball rate was similar, but his pop-up rate jumped 3%. Like, his, his, his fly ball rate dropped 1%. His pop, so he's popping up the ball more, not barreling as much. Obviously, you're popping it up more, less of a chance for a good BABIP. It might just be a small tweak for him, which is crazy to think about. He was going opposite field a lot more this last year, which was something, I don't know if it was what something he was trying to do or maybe just result in being uncomfortable at the plate, trying something new, things we don't know about. But if he's just a small tweak away to getting back to 2019 and now you get him in the fifth round, that's pretty intriguing. So I can uh, he's going to be a guy I look into much more going into this year if that's the price point we look at. Luke Voigt, I, I'm a big fan of, but a couple things is, A, his health's always a concern. B, the Yankees have a lot of moving parts. If he struggles, they'll put someone else at first base. Like I know as much as they love him and the power's awesome, they'll move him around if they have to. So I like Voigt a lot. I don't like him in the fourth round. So I go up Brayu, Alonzo, and Voigt with you as well. I'm pretty much on the similar thought process there. 
Um, the other yeah, just, just on Voight, and I mean, this holds some weight, but you know, he is in Yankee Stadium and he likes to go to right field. But you know, he had 21 barrels last year, so he had fewer barrels than he had home runs. Well, his, his stat so, guys dropped a lot on like everything, his hard hit rate, all of it was down from last year. Yeah, so again, like. You know, I think it's just important to think about regression and even within stack cast metrics, you know, that happens. Um, so, yeah, it'll be it'll, it's, it's that's a tough one, though. All right. The other first baseman one we had here was if you kind of miss out on the first run, don't like a couple guys in the middle, you drop down, you're looking for some savings. You got Eric Hosmer at pick 148, Josh Bell at 153 and Reese Hoskins at 168. So about a round apart for a couple of them, uh, you know. Osmer and Bell five picks apart, but then you go about a round to get the Hoskins, who only a couple of years removed from being a stud. Hosmer's, you know, changes launch angle, all that good stuff. So that's been impressive. And then what do you do with Josh Bell? That's just the question that everyone has right now. So what are you looking at with these three guys? Yeah, um, it's a it's a little bit of these. This is just an area where I'm like not going to be on, in on it. Probably any of these guys. Um, I mean, Hosmer. Hosmer certainly made some changes, but it's still very hard to know whether those changes are just small sample size or not. Um, you know, yes, the ground ball rate went down. It's still well above um, league average, um, you know, and so there's just pieces there. He stole four bases. Like, is that something that he's going to do on a consistent basis or not? But I think the one thing that I do like is that um, he is a compiler. Congratulations, Dodgers! Yep. Uh, on to on to the World Series. Congratulations, guys! <laughs> Go race, Bubba! Bubba quickly quickly chimes in there. So I think with with Hosmer, you know, I think the key thing though is that he's in the middle of that really good lineup, and so he's going to be kind of a compiler. He always has been. I mean, this is around where he was going in twenty nineteen drafts. I think um, you know before he had a really bad twenty nineteen. And so, um, you know, he'd probably be the guy that I would look at here liking the most. Josh Bell is just so hard because generally speaking, you don't want to pay too much attention to small sample sizes. But, you know, that's one of the reasons why you have to say like, okay, he's been super good. He was super good for half a season last year, right? And then he was bad in the second, he wasn't as good in the second half and he's continued that, that fall Um, there's certainly a drop in contact rate, right? You know, 69%. So essentially a 7% drop in his overall contact rate, which is not good. Again, could be a small sample size, but then you also see his ground ball rate, uh, going up a lot, K rate up way up as well. So there's just a lot to just raise enough, you know, red flags or yellow flags or whatever you want to say about them. Um, you know, I think there's enough of those to really just not want to not want to take that risk. I think there's a lot of other guys that you'd want to take in this spot. Hoskins is obviously interesting, but my understanding is with the Tommy John surgery that he's going 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 under. You know, he's probably not going to be ready for um, the early in the season, or else there I think there are some concerns about whether he's going to be um, available for the beginning of the season. If I were to have all these guys healthy. I think Hoskins would definitely be the first guy um, on that list. I just think, you know, he struggled a lot and he's bound to do this because of just his batted ball profile. But um, he struggled early on in the season, but he was just tearing the cover off the ball um, for a couple weeks there. And I don't have it in front of me, but 
I feel like he actually, you know, and, and this is one of the things that I do like about Hoskins and this type of player is even though they are a major concern in terms of the batting average that they provide, because the OBP is so strong, even when they're struggling, they tend to at least generate some runs for you. Um, and so, you know, again, like, you know, in less than 200 plate appearances, he ended up hitting 10 home runs, 35 runs. So he's pretty much the same guy that he's been with a slightly better batting average. I think that, I think this is much more who he is versus the 226 Reese Hoskins. And so of all the guys who are there, um, I would probably take him if they were all healthy, but I'd order them Hosmer, Hoskins and Bell probably at this, at this juncture. Um, you know, without having that clear idea of what Hoskins' health is going to be like. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on Hoskins because the initial thing was Tommy John surgery, and a couple days after that I saw it was a different type of surgery. It's only about four to six months. So if that's what it is, he could technically be ready for spring training. That'll mm-hmm. be where it'll be interesting to see what it was. I heard he didn't need a second opinion, doesn't need Tommy John surgery, just needs some other surgery for his, I believe, elbow, but might be shoulder. Mm-hmm. So something to keep in mind. We'll have to, to keep an eye on all that. Um, but I love Hoskins. I, I've been a big Hoskins fan last year. Played well for the most part, like you said. Just the batting average hasn't quite been there. But OBP on a team like the Phillies that are scoring a lot of runs is a big thing to enjoy. So I, I like Hoskins a lot. If he's healthy, that's a big move. But Hosmer is a guy I, I like a, a ton. I loved him last year. Obviously, the price tag has changed immensely. Missed a lot of time. So, you know, he wasn't quite the same when he came back from injury. So we'll have to see how sustainable it is after the offseason going into the next season. But we've seen guys make the changes like this for the launch angle. We've seen the Daniel Murphys, the Justin Turners, a bunch of these guys that uh, have done it throughout the days to uh, become more power hitters because you don't just change a, a launch angle of like a negative launch angle to an eight-degree launch angle overnight. You have to actually work hard at that, and he did that. So we'll see where that lines. But, um, you know, there was other things to to like about what Hosmer is. You know, he lowered his strike weight 7%, give or take. Like the walk rate stayed the same, hard hit rate stayed the same, but barrel rate went up, launch angle went up, uh, things you like to see there, sweet spot percentage went up, all things that point to more power, more production at the plate, which we saw this season. Is it sustainable? Again, we don't know. I would like to think it is. I'd like to think that it's like if you took some risks early in your draft and you need a first baseman, it's a steep price tag, but Hosmer's one of those guys you can trust to kind of get you like a 280 to 285 average, get you 20-ish home runs, maybe more if this sticks up. The runs, RBIs, maybe 80-80, give or take. And he'll maybe throw in a couple steals, but don't really count on those. But he's going to get you a steady steady stat line in a roto league that gets you a long ways. I always love them as a quarter infield option late, not so much first baseman. But I pick 150, it's probably going to be your first baseman. That's just the way you're going to have to look at it there. So I would go Hoskins uh, first if healthy, Hosmer Bell with you. Because uh, Bell, I just I, I don't know where he is. He, you know, they talked about DFAing him at times. It, it's a whole mess there in Pittsburgh, and then the supporting cast around him is a disaster. So I, I think he needs to change the scenery. He needs someone else to work with him and get him back. He's his head right or something because he just doesn't look the same since that um, you know first half he had a couple years ago. It's been a mess. So Bell will be the third for me. I was actually surprised he's going this high at this point in time because he's the 14th first baseman off the board and last year. I want to say he was 10th or 11th in March. So in, in theory, maybe he's dropping some picks, but as the overall first baseman, it hasn't, hasn't changed much, which really surprised me when you look at it all. Cause like Carl Santana's going away after him, Christian Walker, Trey Mancini, who's supposed to be healthy. Um, a lot of guys are going after him that I'd probably take over Josh Bell. So that's where I sit at the first base position. 
All right. Let's head to second base now. And this one's one I really enjoy because it's got a player I have no business liking. And then a couple other different ways to analyze here. You got Glaber Torres at pick 64, Kevin Bijou at 67, Keston here at 70. So about a six pick range for three second basemen's going off the board. And they kind of offer differences. Torres and Hira are kind of similar, I guess. Not hitting for great average. Still have some power, question marks there. Bijou more OBP, but still a heck of an all-around ball player and steals some bags. I want to know where you stand on these three, Toby. Yeah, I – this is a little bit of a tough one because um, I don't know if I'm into any of them, really. I think they all – well, I'm probably – if I were to say, I'd probably like Glaber the most. Um, I think he, you know, his price this year was just way too high for me. Um, you know, he had kind of the Yankee tax on him, I think. But he actually made some improvements at the plate um, this year. And, you know, he he started off really poorly. But, you know, look at what he did in the postseason, right? He, he was uh, absolutely on fire. And again, you know, we don't want to put too much stock into the postseason. But when we have such a small sample size to work with in the season and he was injured, it's hard, but it looks like he's actually made some 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 potential gains in the plate discipline department, which would be, I think, big for him because that's never been kind of um, his go-to. In the Yankees lineup, he's going to hit at the top of that lineup when he's healthy, um, and I, I think I think he'll he'll just accrue a lot. Um, Biggio is just a you know he's kind of the same guy he was before. Um, I think the batting average ticked up, but when you look at his expected BA. You know, it's still 215. It was 215 this year. So when you look at, um, you know, it, the, the com- combination of his two seasons, you know, you're looking at a 232 expected batting average. You know, his barrel rate was actually down considerably this year, almost cut in half to 5%. Again, small sample size. But, you know, my concerns heading into this season around Biggio was the fact that his, his exit below is just really low. Like he does not hit the ball very hard. So he needs to really pull the ball down the line, which he's capable of doing a lot. So OBP, very valuable. But I think especially around pick 60, the batting average is just too low for me to go after a guy like that. When I think there's going to be a lot of other home run and stolen base combination guys that are similar to him, who who I think I'm going to like a lot more. The position flexibility is really nice, I think. But, um, you know, not a guy I'm going to be targeting. And I think the same with Hira. Um you know, the, the K issues are just massive. Um, and that was true last year, but he had a, a, a BABIP around 400, you know, and, and this year he had a lower BABIP, you know, he's probably somewhere in between because he does make pretty decent contact, but he really struggles. Jeff Zimmerman had an article just about how he really struggled against the fastball. It wasn't even breaking pitches. It was like in the zone against fastballs, he had the lowest contact rate. Um, and that's worrisome. And, and that's not something that he's shown any progress on right um throughout his career which i think is a big red flag that early in the in the draft so for me i'm generally staying away from all three probably but i do think that there's an opportunity for glaber to be to be really good here yeah glaber is a, a tough one because i didn't like his price tag at all last year i was against him like similar to people on wanted nothing, nothing to do with any of that but you um you look at what glaber did this year at the plate and i think we talked about it on a previous episode and similar to Javi Baez is he shored up his plate discipline because his walk rate rose from 8% to almost 14%. His strikeout rate went from 21.5% to 17.5%. Those are great things from a young hitter. That's what you want to see. But his barrel rate dropped to 3.7%. His sweet spots percentage dropped. His hard hit rate actually went up. So there's a lot of weird 
ups and downs when you look at things. And you go and look even deeper, his ground ball rate rose 4%, while his fly ball rate was about a half a percent less. Line driver actually went up his pop-up rate, dropped almost 5%. So his pop-ups basically turned into ground balls. So instead of getting way under the ball, he's getting on top of the baseball. And then the big kicker for me is you don't want your hitters chasing out of the zone. I get it. But he dropped his chase rate from 31% to 20%. Chase contacts was the same, but it just shows he wasn't being as aggressive at the plate. His first pitch swing went from 36 to 24. His swing percentage went from 52 to 42. Like he was being much more cautious at the plate. And some of these younger players, and you see it with the you know the Latin players, they love to be more aggressive. They love to, especially a guy like Glaber, you got a, you got a, a, play, a pitch on the outside of the plate, you can poke it over the fence in right field in Yankee Stadium. You want these guys to be a little more aggressive at the plate. Maybe not go swinging that stuff with not, not Vlagger or Senior, where it's bouncing in the batter's box and hitting it. But, you know, if it's close, go for it. Where it looks like we're as close this past year, he kind of took pitches more. He's being way more cautious. And I think that's something they're going to work on in the offseason, maybe find a happy medium there. Like, hey, go ahead and walk like 11% of the time, but could you swing the bat a little more if it's, you know, an inch off the plate and try to poke it down the line or something, see what happens because there's so much power, so much like speed in that bat take advantage of it because we need you to drive in runs, not walk, and uh, let Brett Gardner do it or something. So I'm, I'm curious what to do with Glaber. The price tag is much better this year, but there was a lot of question marks there. Uh, the, the postseason was nice. I'll give you that. But I'm still not 100% in on him at this point in time. The guy I do like is Kevin Biggio. I know his average is only 250, and that, that wasn't great. His x band average is 215. So uh, that's really kind of concerning to see what he got there. But his hard hit rate dropped a ton. They still walks like crazy, and that's something that we like about him, and we kind of don't like because similar, like he's the opposite of Glaber Torres. He's almost too cautious at the plate. He, his first pitch swing percentage is seventeen point four percent. I was saying Glaber was having a bad swing first pitch swing, and his first pitch swing was twenty five percent. Like literally, Gavin Biggio, it's less than a fifth of the time. One in every five at bats, he might swing at the first pitch. That's pretty. Uh, if you're a pitcher, just groove a fastball, basically, is what it sounds like. Get that 0-1 count. But um, other than that, he's very disciplined. Chase rate's low. Uh, zone rate's great. Everything you want to see with the kid's good. Fly ball rate's not bad. Ground ball rate rose from 25 to 40%. So that's something to keep an eye on because the power was still there. I like him out of these three because he steals bags. That's basically the big kicker for me is he's he's got a little bit of pop. His average isn't horrible. I think it'll keep getting better. His OBP is good. But he's got that pop, and they're hitting him towards the top of that Blue Jays lineup, which is very talented. So I have Kevin Biggio one, I have Glaber Torres two, and Keston here. As much as I want to love this kid, you mentioned the fastball problem. That's devastating to learn because you look at everything else he's done. His numbers are overall similar, except his hard hit rate dropped a ton this past year. He still strikes out way too much. A lot of question marks here from a kid that in college was a great pure hitter. That's what he was, and he came to the minors a great pure hitter. Gets to the bigs. There's been some issues, so I need to see changes with him for sure. He'll be a guy that someone will gamble on one of these days, and it will pay off big. Maybe it's 2021. I won't be there for that. So, Biggio, Torres, Keston Hira for me. Yeah, I mean, Keston Hira, it's kind of nuts how bad he is against fastballs. His contact rate against fastballs was 55.2% on fastballs last year. His swinging strike rate against fastballs, forcing fastballs, was 20.7%. So, I mean, that's like atrocious. His in-zone contact rate on forcing fastballs was 58.7%. You know, that's like if you hit 50, if you have a contact rate of 55%, you're worse than worse, you're the worst in the league probably by about 10%. So 
So that's how bad he is against fastballs. I mean, that's huge. That's a massive, massive um, issue for sure. And I mean, the thing, the thing that I'll say about Glaber, like just, I was doing a little bit more digging um, while you were talking is, you know, some of the like hard hit and stuff like that was down. But I think if you look at just the ebb and flow of his profile, it wasn't necessarily uncharacteristic. Like he ended his last 50 balls in play during the season you know, his, his average exit velocity was 91 miles per hour. So that had returned. The launch angle did not necessarily improve, but I think the key for him is like, whereas with Hosmer, you know, you're looking at a guy who's like, when he reverts back to where he had, he, you know, where he had been, he's like at 46% to 55%, you know, Glaber, even like over his last 15 games was at around 39, 40%. So it's not great, but it's not awful. And he's been in a place where he has had that lower ground ball rate. So I feel like he, you know, um, whereas, whereas, you know, from an analysis standpoint, Hosmer is fighting against this career where we've seen these super high ground ball rates from Glaber. We've actually seen the opposite where we've seen these low ground ball rates and, and he's gone the opposite direction. But I think when we regress those, it's probably looks pretty similar to where he was last year because his ground ball rate increased as well in 2019 up to 39%. So again, you know, definitely not the best season, but I think that there is reason to be optimistic. And if you liked him a lot heading into this year, I don't know why you would, I don't, I don't think you should move away from him and and not be willing to draft him where he's going right now, especially, well, I guess he's only going to be shortstop eligible. Isn't he? Next yeah, year. He's, he's going to lose some eligibility. That's uh, for sure. That's not, that's not. Yeah. Great. Deep shortstop position changes that conversation a little bit. Yeah, for sure. All right. I'm not uh, drafting him. It's true. <laughs> yeah, so that, that changes things a bit, but uh, yeah, it's interesting with with Glaber. It's just, it's one I want to keep an eye on because I do remember he hit much better in the second half of his season because he went he got hurt, came back a lot better after that. So yeah, we'll have to see how it all plays out there with Glaber and company. But the other second base uh, situation we have here is two little guys, uh, not known for a ton of power, but uh, pure hitters. One had a decent year, one had a horrible year, but an amazing postseason that might get people a little more jacked up on him going into 2021. But I pick 109, Jeff McNeil. I pick 113, Jose Altuve. Altuve was like a late first, early second for the most part at the times last year, maybe dug into the third, depending on what league you drafted in. And McNeil was kept moving up the draft boards. Now you're getting him after pick 100. This is an intriguing two guys to me. I want to see where you stand on this. Yeah, I think, um, you know, with McNeil, who was a guy I loved um, coming into this season, you know, I should actually look up. Do you know what his eligibility for next year is going to be? Because I actually think that that's pretty, pretty big for him. Um, I, I'll look at it. I'll, I'll look at it here really quickly. Um, always makes for entertaining podcasting. So in 2020, he had 12 games at second, nine at third. And then 28 in the outfield. Well, so 32 in the outfield. So he, he, exactly. He should, you know, unless they make it 10 games, he wouldn't have third base. Mm-hmm. But um, that I think that's really valuable. I really like McNeil a lot. I mean, he wasn't really different this year versus last year, except for the power. And I do believe in the power a little bit. Not like he's some he's going to be like a big power guy. But I just think that um, – I like the the type of bat to ball skills that he has. I think those are the types of guys that can fairly consistently, you know, um, or at least I trust them. And again, somebody should do research on this who's smarter than me, but when they have that, those really good 
bats of all skills. I feel more confident in, in those kind of pulled short porch home runs, being a little bit more under the in, in control of the batter. Um, and so um, I do think, you know, he's probably a 20 home run guy over the course of a full season. Um, I should check out some like expected home run metrics or something like that on him. But um, so I really like him. I think he's going later for me. He's like kind of like an 80 to 90 ADP type guy. Um, so I'll probably have a lot of him if he stays there. Altuve, I do like more than McNeil. You know, it'll be interesting to see what the Astros look like next year, because I think, you know, Springer's probably going to be gone, right? They're probably not going to resign him. So, you know, who takes over the, the number one spot? Is it Altuve who goes in that one spot for him? You know, do they try to get creative and get Bregman up there just because he's got the great OBP, the great eye, get him a bunch of plate appearances. I don't know, but I think it's going to be a weaker lineup than it was, than it has been in the past. And so that's a little bit of a dent against him, but I still think he's a very good baseball player. The speed may be a little bit, you know, I think him and McNeil will probably steal a similar number of bases um, next year. I give Altuve the power, um, a little bit of the power nod. I think I'd give McNeil a little bit of the batting average nod. Um, and I think, you know, my one concern with McNeil is the Mets just moved him all over the place, right? And he was hitting seventh, he was hitting eighth, which is not where a guy from from my perspective like him should be. But um, so I, I think I lean Altuve a little bit. I think Altuve is a great value where he's going right now, at least in the two early mocks at like 112 or something like that. I think McNeil's a good value going there. And both of them are second basemen. I can definitely see myself having a lot of next year if if the price holds. Yeah, this one's Altuve for me pretty big time because the power-speed combo, and I am 100% on board with him bouncing back, maybe not to like 330 hitting Altuve, but 280 to 300. I'm I'm 100% on board with that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what their team does, but they always have minor leaguers. They'll spend money somewhere else. They'll be competitive still, but uh, I think Altuve will be finally saw. The postseason Altuve, I think, is closer to the what we'll get next year than the bad, bad regular season Altuve. I think there's a lot going on between those years of some of those Astros that once they kind of got uh, situated in the postseason, we saw more of what we expected from them, love them or hate them. That's what, what turned out to. So I'm, I'm on board with Altuve. It was just one of those years where things just dropped off dramatically. But even his X stats said he underperformed, like he should have had better numbers. So as bad as they were, they shouldn't have been as bad, if that makes you mm-hmm. feel any better. Like barrel rate was down. Everything was pretty much down for Altuve. McNeil is very interesting to me. The multi-position eligibility is tremendous. 100% with you there. His hard hit rate dropped, though, from 36 to 26 this past year. That's a little concerning for me. The strikeout rate's still great. Walk rate went up a little bit. Um, but the barrel rate went from 4.8 to 2.5, similar to what he had in 2018. I remember writing about him uh, last preseason, the year, uh, talking about 2019, where the power showed up. But it was one of those, he hit for a ton of average, got hurt, came back from injury, stopped hitting for average, hit for power. So it was kind of like he sold out for one or the other, it felt like. This year, we didn't see much power, saw a good average. I'm curious on what we get. Because right now, if say you just prorate his numbers out, he hits like 11 home runs, 12 home runs, but still hits 300 or something. But, you know, some guys are drafting him thinking he's going to hit 20-something. There's the question mark. Does, can he hit 20 with 300? That's what I want to see. I haven't seen that yet with him. Um, so it's interesting with McNeil. I go Altuve over McNeil. I think Altuve at this point, he's still a darn good second baseman. Like, I take him over Cattell Marte. Or not Cattell, no, Keston Hira. Cattell Marte, I still I think he's going too low. But Keston Hira. And then it gets interesting. you got Brandon Lau getting bunched, moved up all the way to the fourth, second baseman off the board. I like Brandon Lau. Don't get me wrong. That's a heck of a bump on this. Yeah. 
Like that's, that's, that's big, yeah, that's one of those. Like I like him a lot, but I think I think pick one hundred like McNeil on them. So I think would be too early for Lau. I don't know. Like that's a tough one to value, but definitely not fourth. <laughs> definitely not there. So um, yeah, maybe with the Jake Cronenworth of the world thing, go go that direction. But uh, yeah, Altuve over McNeil for me. Yeah, and one thing just to show you just how easily changed the stats from this season are if you combine Altuve's regular season plus his postseason. Oh yeah. Right. So that's 61 games in total that he's played, uh, 270 plate appearances. His batting average would have increased from 219 to 250. Yeah. Right. And so it just gives you a sense of like how quickly things can change when a guy go gets hot. Um, so again, yeah, I think, I think, um, you know, I may be underselling Altuve a, a little bit there. Did, did he, what was his, did he had two stolen bases? Yeah, he so. had two, but he was banged up. Like he's one of those, I could see him still getting you eight to 10, getting you yeah. 20 plus homers, hitting you two way. Like he's going to be in a decent lineup. He's, he's going too late for me. Yeah. Well, and, and when you say it like that too, I mean, the thing is, right. He seems like, I mean, he has 10 home runs in you know, less than 300 plate appearances. So we know he's like a 25 guy, right? So mm-hmm. let's say he's a 25-8 or something like that. Going where he's going, that's that's amazing, especially with knowing the batting average, knowing, you know, as long as he stays healthy, which has been an issue, he's going to get those plate appearances. Um, totally there with you. I think I'm probably, in my analysis, I was underselling him a little bit. And the last thing I'll say on this is what else could have been hampering him besides maybe injury or mental stuff because of the cheating scandal and all that. Bregman wasn't hitting behind him. So he had no support behind him like usual. Usually Bregman's hitting 330 something, so they have to pitch it off Tuve because they take their chances there instead of with Bregman. When the rest of your lineup's not hitting, it's real tough to get anything going. So it'll be interesting to see because I think they all kind of gained a little bit of confidence through this postseason. You know, I, I doubt it's behind everybody, but I think they're going to – it won't be as bad as it could have been if they would have started the season with fans and everything. So. Oh, yeah, totally. And, and it's like it's got to be mentally – Yep. That's Reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like you just said, like you're, you know, you kind of prove you can do it on the biggest stage. And so all these ideas about the only reason why you used to be good. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, I'm just re-saying what you were saying. But. No, it's all good. Uh, yeah. Let's go to the shortstop one. And this one's great because we love Tim Anderson. We talk about him a lot on this show, but then there's Corey Seager, who's always just been a bugaboo but had an awesome season, just won the NLCS MVP because he's, he's got like five or six postseason home runs. He's hitting everything hard this year. When healthy, he's always been good, but when healthy has been a humongous question year after year. He even got hurt a little bit this year, but not much. Came back, kept playing great, had an awesome year. Then you got Mr. Babbitt himself, Tim Anderson, who has got power, speed, everything you want. Uh, Seager's going to pick 44, Tim Anderson 48, loaded shortstop position, but these two guys, if you can wait until like round four or late round three or late round four, maybe even getting around five, if they fall, could be tremendous. What's your thoughts on these two? Yeah, I see that we're back at at, at Corey Seager, third rounder. Um, you know, I think we were here a couple of years back as well. I mean, for me, this one's not even close. I mean, who's likely to have the higher batting average? Tim Anderson, Anderson. right? Who's likely to have the more stolen bases? Tim Anderson by 20, right? Who's likely to score more runs? Tim Anderson, because where he's going to bat in that lineup. Who's likely to hit more home runs? Maybe Corey Seager, right? Who's, you know, Corey Seager will get you your RBI, which is just, you know, whatever. 
So I think this one is Tim, Tim Anderson in an absolute landslide for me. And, and you're not even talking about the health. And I mean, obviously, Tim Anderson has had a, a couple health issues here and there as well. So we can't necessarily negate that. But I just think like, I mean, this is Tim Anderson in a runaway for me. And there's no way Corey Seager should be in the, in the anywhere close to where Tim Anderson's going from my perspective. Well, I'm so glad you answered it that way because I don't have a whole lot more to add. I just wanted to put it out there because I figured this would be where we're going, and I kind of wanted to get the ball running on this because I know Corey Seager's had a great year. I'm not going to knock that, but I got to see it again. Like if you look at his his stats, his barrel rate last couple of years seven three eight two eight five eight three up to fifteen eight. Like okay, that's a nice jump, but all of his numbers just skyrocketed. Hard hit rate last year at 38%, went up to 56 this year. Like, these are great things, but these are definitely things you got to show me again to, to take you at this point on. You got to stay healthy for 162. You got to, like, show me you can hit like this the whole season. He's been awesome. We've seen it from Tim Anderson. We know what Tim Anderson can do. We've mentioned that White Sox lineup. Dodgers lineup's no joke, but I'm with you 100%. You and I like to get guys with steals upside with the power and the average. Tim Anderson does it all. He was disrespected last draft season. In theory, he's still kind of getting disrespected to me as the 11th source up off the board. It's a deep position, so I get it. Like You can make arguments for all the guys going in front of him, but they all can't do what he can do also. So I think he's a steal. I'm with you 100% on this one. All right. We'll head to third base now, and this is another one. We mentioned Altuve earlier. Now we're going to talk Alex Bregman. A lot of these Astros are going to be dropping a bit, and it's going to make things very interesting. Bregman was a late first, early second last year. Now he's a pick 34, almost – uh, he's like about middle of round three. And then you got Rafael Devers, another guy that was going early last year. He's going in the background, back end of round three at about pick 38. So if you got Bregman or Devers, who are you going with? Oh, man. Um, this is a little bit of a tough one, um, I think. Because, I mean, Bregman, I, I lean Bregman just because everything is so solid in what he does. Like, he's just so good in terms of play to play discipline contact rate he obviously doesn't have the quality of contact metrics that we'd love to see but he's one of these guys who can pull the ball down the line on a consistent basis and it's not just the Crawford boxes you know in previous years he's hit more home runs away from Houston as compared to in Houston um, and part of that is just because it's a it's a it's a pretty strong pitchers pitchers park um, and so yeah I I, I would probably lean toward Bregman, I want to say, just because of the consistency, you know, and the Astros, I think, are going to be a better team than the Red Sox are. I think the Red Sox are going to be bad next year as well um, because I think they're going to try to build – I think they're going to build from the from the ground up. I wouldn't be surprised to see them try to trade some of their, like Xander Bogarts, for instance. Um, so I think I – I think I'd probably lean towards Bregman um, just because, you know, just because the profile I think is more consistent and I do worry a little bit about um, a little bit about Devers and that consistency. Obviously he was, he was crushing the ball towards the end of the year. He started out really slow, but um, you know, you don't see, and, and Bregman struggled this year as well, but you don't necessarily the same, see the same, peaks and valleys out of Bregman. Again, I probably won't be going for either one of them because the speed just isn't necessarily there, but it's like, you know, um, Devers saw 7% 
8%, 7% decrease in contact rate overall, right? And last year he saw a 3.5% increase over previous years. So is it that last year was just kind of a little bit of an aberration when it came to his contact rate? And it's really around that 74 to 75%. You know, his plate discipline has not improved at all, which again, you know, in a batting average league isn't necessarily the most important thing. But, um, you know, I think there's enough in there that, that will make me maybe a little bit more hesitant around Devers than, than maybe a Bregman. Yeah, this one's really tough for me because I like Devers a lot. I love his power. He even usually gives you a little bit of speed. Didn't give you any speed this last year. Uh, his average is usually money. Everything was down for him, obviously. That's why these two guys are both dropping in drafts. Uh, but you look at it, like his barrel rate was higher than it's ever been, but his hard hit rate dropped. The concerning thing was the strikeout rate. You know, it was 24-7. Last year at 17, then back to 27 this past year. Like you mentioned, the contact rate. Those are very interesting to look at. The zone contact dropped 7%. The chase contact dropped 8%, and his whip percentage rose almost 8%. So he was, you know, his chase rates and his swinging rate zone rates were this pretty similar. Just when he swung the bat, he wasn't making contact. It was very, very weird to see what the guy like Rafael Devers, to see what all was going on in that situation. He was also um, not going oppo as much as he was before. He's going more centered to, to right field, so maybe a different approach at the plate. That might be something or – Maybe the pitch mix changed on him quite a bit, something worth digging into more. But it's very weird to see what took place when he's, you know, still hitting the ball hard. He's barreling it up more, but he's not making nearly as much contact, which obviously will result in the numbers we're seeing. So he's a guy I, I still want to keep an eye on, though, because he's only uh, 23 years old. Like, this kid's so, so talented. And I like Bregman, too. Like, it's a good, good conversation to have. I think Bregman's a more sturdy guy, like you said. Consistent average, maybe a little more power. Devers' power is awesome, but maybe a little more power with Bregman. I think I lean Devers here, but they're both like really, really close. Uh, Bregman, you can basically say everything I thought about Altuve, I could think about Bregman, like bouncing back next year for all these reasons. Um, but I think I'm going to go Devers over Bregman, but it's it's very, very close. All right, this one I did just for you, Toby, because I know how much you like this guy, but it involves a guy that's we don't draft. And a guy that's moving up draft boards as he playing his rookie season and tore the cover off the baseball. You got Chris Bryant at pick 119, and you got Alec Baum at pick 123. You probably won't pick either one of them, but if you had if you had to, which one would you go with? Well, you know, I said all that negative stuff about Alec Baum and how high he was going, and then diving in a little bit deeper, I didn't realize how good his, some of his stack cast metrics were. Um, they were actually really good, so. I'm not going to go – I still think that's way too high for Alec Baum, but I do want to take back a little bit of what, the harsh words that I said about his quality of contact skills because they didn't, they didn't show up in much, as much in like fan graphs as they did you know, in terms of StatCast. And when it comes to quality of contact, I definitely stat, trust um, StatCast a little bit more in terms of just like hard hit rate versus barrel rate and all that, all that jazz. Um, so, you know, with that said, um, you know, I might actually lean Baum in that instance – um, you know, it's so hard with Chris Bryant because, because what are you getting now? You know, it's just, I mean, it's hard. It's literally, it's, it's hard because this year he's not as bad as he was this year. Right. But it's been such a long time since he was the elite type of guy. It's like, I'd almost rather take a little bit of a, of a, a little bit of that upside, you know? Um, 
over over Bryant. Um, you know, um, which sounds ridiculous, and maybe it is. Maybe my bias against Bryant is just so big, but I just I have a hard time seeing great stuff there. It, it's tough. Like if you. The Triple Play Fantasy guys say Mr. Freeze at the StatCast page is blue, and Chris Bryant is all blue, except yeah. the sprint speed. Like, it's it's bad. It's gotten worse, like, the last few seasons. It's not like it's a one-time thing. You've been on top of it for a while, and it just dropped off tremendously this year. So, like you said, would he be, is he going to be this bad next year? Probably not. But is he still worth going here where you can get the upside of a guy like Alec Baum who literally was torching the baseball? This is why we talked about in DFS – like his price tag was always so low, hitting in the middle of that Phillies order. It's like, you just keep playing this kid. He's hitting the snot out of it. And it was paying off left and right. A little bit of speed, got some power. The average, he was doing all that in the minors. Will he hit 338? No. His XBA was 286. I could see 280. Like, and that's still pretty darn awesome for a guy that's got legit 20 to 25 plus home runs. Maybe swipes you eight, nine, 10 bases. Like, this is a good profile for a third base, third base that you can get later after the big guys are gone. Where you're not going to get a ton of power and, and uh, an average. You'll get a, a you can wait and get a guy like this later on at third base. And that Phillies order, I, I say it a lot. I know you agree that that Phillies lineup's potent. You got McCutcheon. If Reese gets it going, you got Harper, Didi. No, he was a one year deal, I think. So Didi will be gone. JTR maybe. JTR maybe gone, but they got Segura is going to be like. There's still a lot of weapons in that lineup. So um, I think JTR probably resigned. I hope he does because if he's a Yankee, God help us all. But, um, yes, I, I hope he resigns. I really do. Bryce Harper is – he's trying hard enough. He might want to give up some money or defer some cash to make it work. Let's put it that way. But, um, yeah, I think I'm going to go Alec Baum over Chris Bryant too. I think I'm just uh, – Chris Bryant's on that list of not going to get drafted by me anytime soon. So that's where we stand on yeah, that. Yeah, it's just – you know, it's just been a few seasons. And, and obviously, like, his previous seasons weren't that bad. I mean, he did have 108 runs and 31 home runs in 2019. So, you know, maybe, but uh, I don't know. It's just, just not, yeah. yeah. Well, it doesn't help that we've already been soured on him to begin with. So that, that's just where yeah. things stand. But um, it was interesting to me how he and Javi Baez were treated so differently in the lineups. You know, towards the end of the mm-hmm. season, Bryant always stayed up towards the top, and Javi was like dropped down to like pick like number six, number seven, you know, things like that. It was kind of weird how the, how the Cubs handled that whole situation. Cause Brian had no, he had no business being anywhere close to the top of that lineup last year. Yep. Uh, so anyway, like, well, they, they just saw OBP and he didn't even have that last year. So yeah, it was pretty bad. But uh, the other third baseman, what I want to talk about is two guys that one, Brian Anderson was a very popular late round pick last year. And he had a good season, not a great season, but had a good season. And we know what he brings to the table. The other guy, and he's going to pick 166. At 163 is Gio Yershella of the New York Yankees. And this guy gets no respect at all. He is a really good pure hitter. Hits usually about sixth in that Yankees order. So a lot of guys to drive in from uh, each night. I think this guy's sneaky good. I think he could be an interesting value. What is your take on these two? Yeah, I, I kind of had a chance for both of them in our two early mock drafts, and I, I went with Urshela. Um, I think Urshela, like from the skills perspective, he's just um, just super solid. I mean, you know, the O swing's not great, but he makes a ton of contact on everything. 
Um, the stack cast metrics and the quality of contact is pretty strong as well. Um, you know, he was injured obviously this year for a little bit, but he plays great third base. I mean, he's their third baseman of the future for all intents and purposes. He will bat later on in the lineup, which is a little bit of a bummer. Um, but I would lean him in this particular instance just because I think he's the type of guy who's just going to, who just has shown the last couple of years. He's, he's incredibly solid and he's going to contribute everywhere except for maybe stolen bases a little bit. I mean, Anderson had a phenomenal season this year for where he was going in drafts. I mean, 11 home runs, 38 RBI. Um, I think he outperformed a little bit of maybe what he should have, um, you know, gotten like, like the barrel rate went up slightly, but the, you know, the average exit velocity was down. His expected BA was 228. Um, if you look at some of the other metrics, like a big drop in his contact rate, um, you know, it was the home run per fly ball rate that really carried him a lot. I still love Brian Anderson and I wouldn't, I could see myself getting, you know, both of those guys. Did he, does he have outfield eligibility this year? Yeah, I know. Good. No, Anderson's yeah. just going to be strictly third base. Oh yeah. That changes. Yeah. That. No, no 2020 outfield innings, which, it, which makes me sad. Weird. Yeah. That's really weird. Huh. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I, you know, I like Anderson a lot. I think he's a guy who, you know, could just bust out, um, you know, he kind of did a little bit this year, but I think actually with, with a little bit more support in terms of the skills, batting in the middle of that Marlins lineup, which should be improved again, you know, next year. But I, I lean at Ur- Urshela just because I think the skills are really, really strong all around. And if he doesn't get injured, you know, he's, he's going to be contributing home runs. He'll be contributing batting average. He'll be contributing um, runs in RBI. And I'm not as confident that, um, Brian Anderson at this point in his career will be um, contributing the batting average in, in the same way that um, uh, Geo will. So, yeah, I'm glad we're on the same page there. I'm a big, big Geo fan. I love what I've seen from him the last couple seasons, and he's been the regular third baseman there. And he and his his numbers back it up. Like everything's great. The, the barrel rate and were basically similar this past year. Um, the hard hit rates are similar. He actually struck out four percent less, which was even better. He walked almost he walked five percent more like so that is phenomenal yeah. for a guy that that has like a like you said his contact rate's a little goofy chases a bit but he's still walking more and striking out less that's like what glaber torres was not doing that's what rafael devers was not doing it was just like he's doing everything we want he's doing what i want glaber to do mm-hmm. <laughs> if glaber could do this he'd be hitting like 40 home runs and we'd all be taking him back in the second round i'd be on board with that but he's not doing it and geo's doing it and he's awesome at it like he's really good he surprises you with his power from time to time. He's good. He's got legit power. Just you don't expect it. You expect a guy to go, you know, two for five, three for four once in a while. You know, a couple doubles. Like he he reminds me a lot of Manny Machado before Machado had all his power, where he's a doubles machine and hit for average and drove in runs. That's Geo, and he's just quiet because he's on the Yankees, so he gets buried in that lineup. If he was on the Royals or somewhere in the Midwest, everyone would know who Julio Shell is, but they don't because he's on the Yankees hitting sixth or seventh. You just don't know him. So I think he's a great player. Uh, you hit on a lot of the big spots there. Anderson, I like. I liked him at a, a more of a discount, and not having the outfield part really stings as well. But still a very good player. Nothing to, to knock him. But it's Geo and Geo pretty easily for me on this one. All right, let's head to the outfield. And we could have done a ton in the outfield, but I just picked a couple that were close, maybe young versus old, like this one, and some other ones that kind of make it interesting. But let's start with a young versus old here, and it's guys we like. Tommy Fam pick one hundred two, and Kyle, or one hundred two point two, 
and Kyle Lewis at 102.7. So essentially going about the same pick. You got Tommy Pham, who used to be a guaranteed 2020, like 270 to 280, just machine, rock. Now you got Kyle Lewis, not a big average guy, power, some speed, had a monster, probably rookie of the year season. Where would you go with these two? Yeah, probably I go with Pham, I think, still. I mean, the injuries, you know, concern me um, a good deal, but I think that, um, you know, Pham has that, has the OBP. Um, he's in that, he's in that Padres lineup. Um, he steals bases and more consistently than I think um, uh, Lewis does. And so there's just, it's just more of a stable profile. I kind of know more of what I'm getting. And even if Pham is injured, I mean, this is a good example. Like this year, you know, yeah, Pham was injured for most of the season, but if you had him, I mean, yeah, you're a little bit sad, but he got you six stolen bases, I think. It was either six yep, or eight stolen six. bases yeah. in the first, yeah, in the first two weeks of the season, you know, and, you know, and you can get the other stuff other places. Um, so, yeah, I, I would lean Fam in this particular instance. And if Fam falls to this point in drafts next year, I think, you know, I'll probably own a decent amount of him because I just think that the pro- profile is so solid for him, like a 2020. 2015, 2020 profile that again, even if he is injured for a part of the season, I think I can compensate a little bit for that um, with what he does. And this, and the injury that he had this year was a little bit of a freak injury, right? It was a ham eight bone, you know? So um, yeah. And he's going to have the whole off season to recover. Obviously he had that issue, I think with his, with his elbow, I want to say as well. So, I mean, there's different things going on there, but, um, I'd still probably be in on Fam over Lewis at this point. And then he just got stabbed outside a strip club. So hopefully, he, he did. That, yeah, they said he that recovery is going to go. What you know? What I'm more curious about. I'm glad he's healthy. But Toby, we live in California. How the hell is a strip club open in San Diego? Yeah, like, what, well, what, what is going on here? <laughs> if, to from the stories that I read, I, I'm not sure if he was at the strip club or oh, just outside of the strip club. Gotcha. His car was parked there. And the and, altercation happened at his car. And so, yeah. yeah, and people were like, I don't know, leaning on his car or something like that. He's probably got a nice car. And okay. words were exchanged and somebody stabbed him. Yeah, yeah but he's, he's going to survive. Everything was good there. So we're happy. Like I said, I'm more concerned, sadly, about the elbow than the stabbing in his side where stitches should heal all that up because nothing else got internally hurt. So that's good. But um, yeah, I take Tommy Pham in a heartbeat. We know how much listeners of the show know how much we liked Pham last year where he was going. This year's a steal because a 2020 guy at this point in the draft is tremendous for your roster. Uh, he's going to be leading off or hitting towards the top of that Padres lineup with Tatis and Machado and Hosmer as much as you love him or hate him. And, you know, Austin Nola, like they, they're going to have a very potent lineup again next year. So, uh, yeah, give me give me Tommy Famous. I like Kyle Lewis. Don't get me wrong, but there's just things that concern me. Like he hit 262 this year, which is great. X batting, which is 240. For him, it's still probably not bad. He was a better bag and average asset in the minors, a little bit better than that. Barrel rate was good, but like the hard hit rate was only 35%. You thought it would have been a lot harder when it seemed like every time he looked up, he was going deep, but he wasn't. His strikeout rate was still 29%, which, you know, for him is not bad, but, but it was it's still not great. 14% walk rate was very nice to see, though. So there's a lot of good and a lot of bad with him, and he's still super young, so there's time to develop maybe and change things a little bit there. I just I, I just want Tommy Pham at that point. Like Kyle Lewis, to me, was really good. Should be going a little later in drafts. Uh, the question I have for you is, I know we like Tommy Pham at 102. 
your boy Eddie Rosario is going to pick 98. How do you decipher between those two? I pick Eddie Rosario probably. I think I did that in 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 the too early mock. I mean, a lot depend. It depends on team construction pieces as well. But I just think Eddie Rosario is like super underappreciated. He does the same thing every year. You know, it's that batting average power combo, which I think is really great. And he actually stole a little bit this year. So he does add a few bags. It will be interesting to see what happens to him, though, because I don't know if he's going to be with the Twins next year. Um, you know, I don't know if they're going to want to pay what he's going to make in his last year of arbitration before free agency. So, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what we'll see what happens there. But I'm a, I would lean Eddie in that particular spot, probably. All right, we got another outfield one to do here, kind of another power speed one that uh, is interesting because Byron Bucks this year hit 13 homers and only stole two bags. And when he was healthy, which is always a caveat with him, he was amazing. Like they even moved him up towards the top of the order. Like it was big boy stuff with Byron Bucks and going to pick 128 in these drafts and going to pick 132, a guy we liked going into last year. We compared him to Tommy Pham last year. Some injuries derailed things, you know, got in a brawl because someone talked about his mama. It got wild at times with Ramon Laureano. He's going to pick 132. So, in theory, could be a discount if we think he is Tommy Pham. You're getting him 30 picks later. Or do you go for Byron Buxton at pick 128? Yeah, I would go with Laureano in that particular case. Um, he started off really slow this season, but he started to turn it on towards the end, towards the end of the year. We saw last year – you know, where he also struggled, I think, at the beginning of the season, but then he went on an absolute tear for a couple months there. Um, and that's what pushed his, his ADP up so much. I think you have the power speed. I think you have batting average. I think you have, you know, OBP. He's got decent plate discipline. So I think you have a five-category contributor generally. I mean, the batting average isn't probably going to be super elite, but it, it'll be solid. So i definitely go with Loriano. I mean, I think the issue continues to be with Buxton, both the injuries, but then also just the inconsistency in the batting profile. I mean, Buxton's O swing was over 50% this year. Um, you know, contact rate was pretty low. Um, I, do, I I moved off of his page, but I'm imagining that that home run to play ball rate was, um, you know, through the roof probably. Let's see, like 30% plus would be my guess. Let's see, 26.5%. His career is 13.1%, including 10.1% last year. So, you know, and his ground ball rate went up uh, as well. So, you know, yeah, I, I just, um, I would go with Loriano there. I, I'm probably not going to pay up for Buxton, especially, I mean, I think the speed will be there in some capacity, but um, it wasn't last year and, and it's not a sure thing, right? Now that's the thing. If Buxton's not running, I don't want Buxton. That's, that's what you're, you're drafting him for is, you're already playing the play with fire for the injury risk. And if he's not stealing, it's like I can get Randall Grichik a hundred picks later and get 30 home runs. Like I, I don't need to go take you right now. So that's kind of like, and there's more guys like that's just the one that pops into my head right now. So I go lower down as well. I think there's a lot to like about him. You know, I mentioned the injuries. He's another guy. Like, I, I feel like a broken record, but like when you're talking, I start looking at their pages more and he's another guy where it's just all of a sudden, his swing rate dropped 8% this past year. So then it just it correlated across. He was chasing the ball 6% less of the time. His zone swing was almost 10% less. And his walk rate doubled this past year. Like So he's walking more, which is great. So his OBP is doing great. He can get on maybe steal some bags. But he's not hitting for like a big average because when he does hit it, it's not been productive. His BABIP's down a bit. He's not hitting for home runs, which we kind of wanted the 20-20 upside with him. 
So it's kind of another interesting one. Does he stick with this kind of more disciplined approach? Let's get on base. Let's steal bags and score some runs. Or do I go back to, you know, I can hit 20 plus home runs and get the job done. What do we see from him next year? I think we'll see a little more power from him because that's one thing the A's this year, especially towards the end. And it kind of was their detriment in the postseason is their offense lacked a lot of consistent thump. They really, really did. It seemed like they were almost all too disciplined. And sometimes it cost them strikeouts because they fall behind in the count and other things like that. So I think Loriano's a, a strong bounce back candidate. And I might have to just make a list of guys that change their not well, I don't know if they change their approach, but just looking at things makes you think they change their approach at the plates and see if we can maybe get something tweaked on that one. But yeah, I'll take Loriano over Buxton as well. All right. The last one we have here, we have a catcher's debate on this one, and it's an early round catcher's one, which is a, it's a good one. Well, not early. It's early for catchers. It's the fourth and fifth catcher. But I pick 138.6, Yasmani Grandal. At 140, Wilson Contreras. It's a good one, Toby. So what do you have on this one? Yeah, this is kind of a tough one, and I added this to the list just because, number one, I love catchers. And then number two, I just think it's a really – I think this is one that I'll be struggling with a little bit if, if it gets to the point of me getting a catcher at this particular point in time. You know, Grandal, obviously, OBP stud, um, great, but the batting average is always lacking. You know, you're looking at 240, 230. Um, Contreras – you know, and, and I think it's also like where Contreras got so many plate appearances this year. And it's like, did he get so many plate appearances this year? Because he played first, he played DH, um, you know, because of because of the shortened season. And they just wanted to kind of maximize him because he's one of the better, better bats in this lineup. Or, you know, so was it was it because of the shortened season or is this the type of play appearances that we see from Contreras moving forward? Because it's similar to what we saw from Grandal in, in Milwaukee where he would play first. He would he wouldn't DH, but he'd play first a lot and they'd get his bat in the lineup. Whereas now with with the White Sox being as loaded as they are and even you know more loaded when you think about some of the prospects that they can they can bring up, you know, I, I think I kind of lean towards Contreras in this instance because I think, you know, he's more likely to have a higher batting average, even though he struggled with some contact this year. You know, I think overall his his overall skill set is is higher contact, higher batting average than Grandal. I think there's fairly similar power um, potential from the two. And I do think that Contreras, because he's one of the better bats in that Cubs lineup, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets a significant plate appearance edge heading into 2021. But I think a lot of that would depend on what happens in the offseason. How do the Cubs plug their holes if if they do plug those holes? Um, you know, what type of trades do they make? Cause they got a lot of guys who are entering some of the final years of their, of their contracts. That core is kind of, you know, maybe a little bit past its prime now. So yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what happens, but both guys that I really like, and I think are pretty solid, um, but different, very different profiles and, and consistency levels. So it'll be interesting to see where, where they kind of end up. Yeah. It's, it's a very good uh, comparison between the two because, like you mentioned, you got Grandal switch hitting middle of a White Sox order. That's going to be good for sure next year. A lot of things to like there, but he gives a he brings a big batting average woe to the plate the last couple of years. It feels like so. There, there's a little bit of a concern there. Where Contreras, on the other hand, when he's swinging it well, has a really good average. Two forty three last year, not great, but for a catcher, it's actually not horrible. Uh, DH first base catcher, like you said, helps a ton with Caratini there, especially. It's an interesting dynamic between the two. That's for sure. 
Uh, very consistent approach to the plate, though, with Contreras. I'd probably lean Contreras over the two, but uh, I don't think you can go wrong either way. And it's an OBP league. I know Contreras had a 356 OBP last year and a career 351, which is really, really good. I think I'd still take Grandal on the OBP department. I, just, I, I guess the team context would be the tiebreaker there. But um, give me Contreras an overall regular 5x5. Five five. All right. Got a couple listener questions before we wrap this up here. And the first one um, from Dave Petroziello says, you guys touched on him a bit in the last pod, what, uh, but what the heck happened to Josh Bell? Was the first four months of 2019 just a huge fluke? He was so bad in 2020. We kind of hit on it. Uh, did you want to kind of re rehash anything there? No, I mean, I think we covered him pretty extensively. You know, again, it's one of these things where we're like, um, you know, it's like, what is the small sample size? And it looks like the small sample size is the is the um, the thing that doesn't necessarily fit the profile. Like, yes, this season is the worst that he's been, but also like he was worse towards the second half of last year and he wasn't as good, you know, in years before that. So, you know, there's just everything went wrong as we covered before. And I just don't think um, I'm going to be in. It'll be interesting to see what, what happens to him though, because he's the type of guy where I could easily see him, you know, um, uh, what is it called? Non-tendered by the pirates and end up on the race. Or something like that, you know what I'm saying? Like, out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like a little bit more, uh, you know, getting him on the right team, I think, could really change that value significantly. So that'll depend some of it there, but just a lot of uh, way too many um, red flags for me to, um, you know, I think pursue him. It all went wrong. It all went yeah. wrong. To answer your question. Uh, it all went wrong exactly. And then the other question we have is from Joe McHugh at the underscore McHugh. As you think about 2021 starting pitchers, how are you thinking about workload increases, league division adjustments given film and prep time, plus more opponents, and more generally how some results might stabilize over a long season? I know we've hit on this on recent weeks, and we'll hit on it plenty going forward. But have you had any time to think about how you would approach 2021 pitchers just yet? Um, not that much. I mean, part of it will be the projections and the way that they kind of, um, you know, tackle it a little bit. I think more, a lot of it we'll get to know as the season kind of comes up like spring training and things like that. But I generally think like, you know, the guys who, I guess it's, I guess maybe the best way to think about it is that, is that you have like this continuum of pitchers and on one end you have the high volume guys and on the other end, you have the low volume guys, right? The guys that we always question, like how many innings are they going to have? How many did it? And you have like kind of your aces who are throwing 180 to 200 plus innings every single year. I think that continuum should stay relatively similar, right? Like the guys who, you know, even if guys aren't throwing 200 innings next year, you know, the guys who are, who are normally throw more innings are going to be more likely to do that, Right. Um, but I think a lot of teams handled this internally. Like they had guys throwing. I think there was an article about Dylan Bundy and how the Angels actually had him throw about 180 innings because on his ranch, when when it was the off season, you know he was he was throwing he was throwing like on a regular schedule to make sure that he was he was keeping that arm up. So I'm sure that a lot of other teams did something similar. But it may be one of those situations where we find out in the off seasons that. A lot of teams did it and some teams didn't. And then maybe you penalize the guys who didn't, you know, 
are on teams that, that, that don't have that type of like, that didn't have that type of setup um, more than the guys who don't. So I think we'll have more information as leagues approach. Um, But, you know, and and again, it's probably going to be one of these situations where the guys, the teams that are, that are best at developing pitchers, the, 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 the teams that are kind of out ahead of it in terms of like just analytics and their understanding of pitching are once again, going to be, you know, are going to have even more of an advantage over the teams that just, you know, fell asleep, you know, during that period of time. So I think we'll learn more as the season progresses, but generally speaking, I think that continuum holds where, you know, your high volume ACE type guy is going to continue to be that regardless of what the situation looks like. And those guys that struggle for innings, right. Are going to have, have major questions, you know, like a guy like, um, you know, like a, a good example is um, Corbin Burns, right. Like he's not going to throw 180 innings next year, right? But maybe he'll throw 150, something like that. Um, and looking how teams have handled this in the past, anyways, I could I'll just keep talking forever. So take it yeah. away from me, please. Now uh, Burns, Lazardo, those are the kind of guys I like. The younger arms are the ones I'm more concerned with. Like you, like you basically said, the, the veterans we've seen do it before. I'm cool with it. That's why I still have the argument for Walker Bueller because like he batted a little blitzer this year. He always starts out slow. If this went a full season. He still would have got 170 plus innings. He's gone over 180 before. Like maybe he goes 165 to 170 next year, not 200. Like I thought he would have done this year, but I still think he gets his. Like, like the aces are going to get theirs. Um, so I, that's kind of how I'd approach it. Like the young guns that are the fun new toys, the Tristan McKenzie's, the Sixto Sanchez's, a lot of these guys, maybe be a little careful unless you hear something. So it's like some of them want to go play in the Dominican. Some of their teams want them to go play down there in the, the winter ball. That could be huge. Like, like Toby mentioned, guys pitching on the side. I know guys were doing that this season. I know guys that they said they're going to do it throughout the month of October to basically finish out with another, you know, 50 innings or something on their arm. Like, to, and then they'll take another month or two off and they'll head to Arizona or Florida. Like, these guys are going to do everything they can because, in the end, the team is responsible for what they do. But at the same time, the player knows that if they're not putting up innings, no matter what the circumstance was, that when they want to go get a new contract, the team will point to this. So they need to be ready to go to those innings also. And some of them won't care. Like, like, okay, first guy that came to Mike, an old guy, John Lester, is old. Like, he's got one or two more years left. He might just say, screw it, I'll pitch as much as I can and just take my time off. Or he might just not even care and only want to pitch 120 innings. That's a question mark. But you're not really drafting John Lester. These guys in the middle range. Don't draft John Lester. Exactly. But, like, these guys in the middle, like a Giolito, um, even Carrasco, I feel pretty confident in. Like, there's a bunch of guys that, I, like, if we've seen them do it before, once or twice, I'm cool with them like doing it again this next year. If anything, maybe decrease it by like 15, percent and that's just and that might just be something to think about throughout the entire landscape of baseball outside of like five guys, maybe. And then it's really not that big a deal anymore. So there is some concern, and there'll be stuff to listen to, like Toby said. But at the same time. It won't be business as complete usual next year because there will be like consequences for a shortened season. But I think it's going to be pretty darn close to business as usual next year. So, as barring the COVID situation, I'm talking about just guys on the field playing baseball, business as usual. So, we'll see how it plays out. But, all right, Toby, that'll wrap us up this week. Any final thoughts? It's Dodgers raise. Who you got? Oh, man. With my heart or my head? Whichever one's got the right answer. My heart is with the Rays. My head tells me Dodgers. Um, I think it would have been a really interesting – the Braves-Rays would have been really interesting because I just think 
you know, similar to the way that the Dodgers and the Braves were interesting, you know, the Braves just don't have the pitching, you know, but the Dodgers, it's tough because they have the pitching and the hitting, the Rays have the pitching and the hitting just leaves a little bit to be desired. And so that's why I give the edge to the Dodgers in my head, but my heart bleeds whatever color it is that the Rays uniforms are. Um, and so, yeah, and you want to know who else is think is probably going to play in the Dominican League? Who? Yasiel Puig. Oh, dude, good call, good call. Yeah, I saw I saw a little note um, from one of the um, from a reporter. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see what happens. I know there's a lot of teams that want their like American players to go down there and play, but they're having issues with the whole COVID thing. So because mm-hmm. we'll that because that could be a big deal too. Maybe these guys get the upper hand. Like there's this. A ton of storylines that we're going to have it coming out. But that's why they're having the instructionals are going on right now in Arizona. Like mm-hmm. I saw Ryan Bloomfield um, tweeted out a box score from like the Mariners and someone else where some prospects were hitting bombs. So they're trying to make things work. We'll see what happens. Just kind of watch the mining the news of the world and all that fun stuff. But yeah, I'm I'm the Ray, I'm pulling for the Rays. I'm always terrified of the Dodgers. As much crap as I talk about the Dodgers, it's all in fun for one and B. I respect the the snot out of the Dodgers. Like I, I've, I've always said, it's tough being a Giants fan these days because I like guys like Bueller. I like guys like Bill, I love Mookie Betts. Like it's really hard to be a Giants fan and hate the Dodgers because they have, it's like the old school Dodgers. There's a whole different atmosphere. That's why the rivalry existed. These guys are like good young ball players that are just hard to not like. It's just more of a fun. Hey, you're the Dodgers on the Giants. Like here we go. And then when the game's over, we shake hands and walk away. So that's where that's at. Um, the Dodgers are due if you want to believe in that narrative, but. Like the Rays is scary because if they didn't play like a plus 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 level defense like they did against the Astros, they probably don't win that series either. So it's like mm-hmm. it all fell on the right way there with the pitching and the defense that played out of its mind. Can they do it for another at least four games? We'll see. It's it's going to be really really interesting. And the caveat on this playoffs, we didn't see it in the first few rounds. There's off days um, after like two. Oh, is there? Yeah, it was. I think. Uh, I think it's. I think it's game one and two is Tuesday, Wednesday. I think they get Thursday off. I think they play Friday, Saturday, Sunday, mm-hmm. and then they get Monday off. I think is how it's going to go. So wow, Major League Baseball is allowing them to play on the weekends. Yes, wow. Popular, right? What a what a pleasure. Yeah, how oh, good it'll be. But we'll wrap it up there, and we'll uh, maybe we'll have a World Series champ to talk about next week. So that'll be game five, I believe. So we'll see. But uh, you can catch Toby on Twitter at BatFlipCrazy. I'm at Biddy Entrick. We'll uh, do some pitching player debates and your questions next week. But until then, catch you guys later.